Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let me read it, and then we will pray. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured with such hostility who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Our Father, we thank you for this chapter and these weeks, months that we have been in this chapter, being reminded of your faithfulness. For here in this chapter, Hebrews 11, we have seen men who are faithful, though flawed, weak, struggling men. So what we have really seen is not the supremacy of men, but the supremacy of God, who is faithful to himself, who is faithful to his own, who is worthy to be trusted. And this chapter has been a reminder to us of just how magnificent you are How gracious you are, how patient you are, how trustworthy you are. And now as we come to the final portion of this chapter, might our hearts be riveted by the ultimate man of faith, Jesus Christ, our Savior. No ordinary man, of course, for he was the God-man, but a man who in the flesh, as a man, was faithful to you. And not only provides us an example to follow, but as the God-man empowers us to follow Him. And so might we do so with joy and with gratitude, even as he did. And that we might also remain faithful when our hearts are weary. And so we commend ourselves to you now, Father. Would you would you change us by this passage? It is familiar. Might its familiarity not keep us from transformation, but might we see it with new and fresh eyes that give us a great and a surpassing hope in Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. In 1948, Dutch physicist Hessel de Vries began doing some research on the daughters of a, two daughters of a colorblind man whom he had come across and determined that their eyesight was not only different from their father, who was colorblind. You might have expected that they also would be colorblind in turn. They weren't. But their their eyesight was also different from everyone else that might be considered to have a normal kind of eyesight. So he did some research into the kinds of things that they were seeing and perceiving in their eyesight. And just by way of a little bit of background, and I'm, I am no... Um, I'm no biologist and I'm, I'm no medical doctor, so I'm, I'm relying here on things I've read on the Internet, and that may or may not be helpful. My understanding is that our eyes perceive color through the cones that are in our eyes, and everybody has three cones. And those cones are sensitive to the wavelengths of light that hit our eyeballs. Uh, there are three kinds of cones that address three different color groupings. There are the long wave rank, uh, long wavelength reds, the medium wavelength uh, greens, and the short wavelength blues. And 
And those three cones take in that light and the variety of means by which the light hits the eyes accounts for all the different colors that we see. What DeVries discovered is that some people, a very few number of people, have a fourth cone that allows them to see in even more more remarkable ways, seeing a, a greater variety of colors and hues. DeVries' study was not particularly followed up on for about 50 years. And then about 20 years ago, scientists began doing more study about that, about these anomalies, four-cone people, you might say. Tetrachromats is the technical word. Speculation is, Keith and I have talked about this, you know, guys, Keith says, um, regularly only see eight colors. You know, the eight colors in the Crayola crayon box, guys see eight colors. These tetrachromats, they speculate, may be able to see up to 100 million colors. A little bit more than what Keith and I see. The condition is quite rare. One person that has the condition is an Australian artist by the name of Conchetta Antico. I think that's pronounced correctly. Cognitive scientist Kimberly uh, Jameson has tested Antico and examined her artwork, and she says this. If you look at her pictures of dawn and dusk, she uses many colors. These monochromatic landscapes are portrayed in pastels. Tree silhouettes are rendered in magentas and mauves. Their shadows in matters and russets. Matter is a red color, I'm told. Ms. Antico insists that these spectral shades are not imagined. The colors I paint into twilights are not artistic expression, she says. Where you see gray, I see a rich and beautiful mosaic of lilacs and lavenders, violets and emeralds. The writer says, she talks as if colors splinter beneath her gaze. Take what you call white. You might see lead whites, ivories, chalks, silvers, warm whites, cold whites. But I see so many more subtle shades Most without a name. Wouldn't it be cool to see life like that? To see the realities that others do not see. Wouldn't it be similarly helpful to see your spiritual life with an increased kind of perception that we often do not have? about what God is doing in our lives? What if we could pull back the curtain of our sufferings and sorrows and our difficulties and see the reality of all that God is working in us? There are times that we can see some of those realities, but often the Lord withholds those things from us while still demonstrating that He's trustworthy. We don't understand in full but we know that he's trustworthy in the middle of that. We, we saw that at the end of Hebrews 11 last week. Speaking about all those who are in this chapter, all those from the Old Testament who were faithful, he says in verse 39, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. God said, I approve. You're mine. You're faithful. But you don't get the full promise. They didn't see everything. And the writer of Hebrews is sending his letter to encourage New Testament believers who are suffering in similar kinds of ways suffering and persecution, to encourage them to persist in faithfulness to Christ and in their salvation. Most of us read Hebrews 11 and we're going to find encouragement. We're going to find hopefulness from the response of these Old Testament sufferers. But some of us miss the conclusion to Hebrews 11. And we miss the final application that the writer makes about living faithfully in difficult times. And I I think in part we miss it because of a poor chapter division. So we have the end of the chapter, 
1140, and we think, well, that's the end of the story, when in reality the chapter break or the division of thought ends much more naturally at 12.3. And so I think what's going on in this passage is the writer is continuing chapter 11 into the opening verses of chapter 12 and pointing to Jesus and making direct application to us for how we ought to respond when we cannot perceive spiritual realities When we can't see what's behind our suffering, where do we look? How do we understand it? And so what the writer will teach us in these opening verses of chapter 12 is this. When suffering, practice the basic principles of sanctification. And I'll flesh that out for you in just a moment. But sanctification really can be summed up in Three short, pithy statements. If you want to grow in Christ, you put off sin and unrighteousness. That's Ephesians 4.22. You put on a corresponding act of righteousness. That's Ephesians 4.24. And you renew your mind to think about Christ. That's Ephesians 4.23. Put off, put on, renew your mind. And the, the writer to this letter, of this letter is going to take those very same principles and as he thinks about suffering, give us something to put off, something to put on, and something to think. And that's the means by which we are sanctified. In this passage, we're going to see those three principles of sanctification. Let's start in verse 1. When suffering, practice the basic principles of sanctification. First of all, when suffering, stop. Now, I want you to notice something, 12.1. First word, therefore. When you see the word therefore, you can infer that the writer is making a conclusion. Because of everything that has been said, I want you to draw this conclusion. So he very clearly is, is not leaving the topic of chapter 11, but he's continuing that topic on into chapter 12. And now he's, he's putting the bow on it. He's finishing it. And helping us to see the reality of it, of what he has been speaking about. What's interesting is this word, therefore, this is the only time that word, therefore, that form of the word, therefore, appears in the New Testament. And um, there are a couple of different words that often are translated, therefore. And this word is actually a conglomeration, a, 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 a compound of three, therefore, words. It's as if he's saying, therefore, therefore, therefore. That, I mean, that's oversimplified. But he just, he's wanting us to see, I'm making a conclusion. Don't miss this. There's something to do in light of everything I've said about all these who have gone before us. Now, before he gets to what he's telling us to do, notice what he says. Therefore, since, because. Why should we do something about what we have just read? Because, he says, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, some have suggested that this cloud of witnesses is everybody from the Old Testament and all the believers in Christ who have gone up to heaven and it's like they're peering over the edge of heaven through the clouds, as it were, and they're watching us. And it's like they're in the great stadium of heaven and they're watching us on the field of play, cheering us on. That's a great picture. And I hate to burst bubbles, but I don't think that's what's going on here. If you will remember, that word witness is used multiple times in chapter 11. It starts in 11.2. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Approval, that's the word testimony or witness. There was a testimony about them that came from God, that they were faithful. We see it as well in the life of Abel. Verse 4, God, middle of the verse, testifying, that's the word, about his gifts and Through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Verse 5, 
Similarly about Enoch, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up and he obtained the witness, the approval, the testimony before his being taken up that he was pleasing to God. And what we find through this chapter, five times this word appears, that God is speaking in a way that approves of those who are living their lives, saying, yes, they really are my people. They're doing what I've called them to do. They are faithful. And here, the writer is taking that word that always is used in chapter 11 of God approving men, God testifying to the faithfulness of man, and he's turning it around, and he's saying, not only did God approve of these, but these testified to God's faithfulness. And what we have in verse in, in chapter 11, the writer is saying, is we have a great cloud of people who have been testifying through their lives and through their actions that God is trustworthy. You can trust Him. And it's like the... It's as if the, the writer is saying, we are absolutely surrounded by these people. Not literally, but... But their testimony is all around us. We, we open any page of the Old Testament and we're going to see these who are faithful. Because they are faithful, he says, because this is such an uncountable number of people who are faithful, we should likewise persist when we are suffering. And notice this as well, verse 1. Therefore, since... What's the pronoun? We. He's not picking on the readers and saying, y'all just need to get your act together. But he puts himself in that same category. First person plural. We. You and I. We both need to respond in the same way because of the testimony that we have about God's faithfulness. And what is it that we are to do? Well, he's going to tell us we're to put something off. We're to stop doing something. And the first thing he's going to say is put off anything that slows your growth in Christ. Let us, he says, middle of the verse, also lay aside every encumbrance. Lay aside is a word that sometimes is translated as put off or take off. It's a, it's a word that is related to garments and clothing. It's really an athletic picture. Um, it's helpful to remember the kind of attire that these people would wear in those days and times. Most of them would wear robes, right? So they wear a robe. So unlike me, wearing slacks, they've got a robe that goes all the way to the ground. And if you've got a foot race and you're wearing a robe, women, you can understand this. It's hard to run in a long dress, isn't it? And so in those days, they might take that robe, they might reach around the back, grab the bottom hem, and they would pull that up and up through their belt and kind of fold it over the top of their belt in the front. And that would kind of create leggings so that they'd be able to move with more freedom. But even there, they were restricted. And so very often in athletic contests and athletic games, they would strip all the way down. And you know what I mean by that. I'm trying to be careful about kids. So... They'd strip all the way down. So there'd be no encumbrance. They're free to move fully. And that's what the apostle does. He takes that athletic word and he says, strip away, take off, remove fully any kind of encumbrance. That word encumbrance is a word that simply means a weight. Take off anything that will distract you from the objective of faithfulness to God. Now, with that word, I don't think he's talking about sins, sin. Some writers have posited that he's talking about encumbrances that lead us into sin. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's just talking about stuff in our lives that move us away from the goal of following Christ. Anything that keeps us from being faithful. Any weight that holds us back. And notice that he says, take off, remove, stop, put aside every encumbrance. 
anything, everything that distracts you from Christ, no exceptions. Notice as well that he is kind of vague, right? Take off encumbrances. What does he mean by encumbrances? Well, I've got a few ideas, but I think he is a vague intentionally because he understands that different people are going to have different things that entice them away from Christ. And so he doesn't want to just pigeonhole it and just say, well, just beware of this one thing and guard against that. He, he says anything that's going to lead you away from Christ. Like the athletes that carried nothing into their contests, even not carrying clothing into the race. One writer says, believers should travel light. I like that. We should travel light. There's nothing weighing us down. And note, with this, I think he's, I think he's including here things that are good. You would say, this is a good thing. But it is a distracting good thing that's pulling me, even in its goodness, away from wholehearted allegiance to Christ. What kind of things could they be? I think they could be things like relationships, friendships, jobs, civic duties, hobbies, activities done in discretionary time, entertainment, education, dare I say it, books and reading. Yikes. Sleep. Too much or too little? Vacations? He's talking about anything that supplants Christ and makes us say, I can't trust Christ because I need this. And it moves us away from Him. It might just be helpful for you periodically to just check your schedule and check your checkbook. How you spend your time, how you spend your resources. And is there anything that you find as you evaluate that that's moving you away from Christ? Has it become an encumbrance to being faithful to Him? Do those things help you? Or do those things hinder you? Put off anything that slows your growth in Christ that keeps you from being faithful. There's another thing that he identifies Put off every sin because every sin is a snare. Let us also, he says, lay aside every encumbrance. And so that's the second one. So one thing we're to lay aside, put off is encumbrances. And the second thing is the sin which so easily entangles. Notice that he uses the article, the sin. And I, there's, there's a lot of speculation exactly about what he means by that. Which sin? Which, which is the one sin that entangles? Which is the one that pushes us over the edge and keeps us from following after Christ? And again, I don't think he's thinking about any one particular sin. Other than he is thinking about the sin that entangles. So what is, what is the sin that leads you away from Christ? And my pet sin may not be your pet sin. And by saying the sin that entangles, he's left it open for us to consider anything. In fact, we can say when he says the sin that entangles... Can't we just say all sin entangles? All sin ensnares? We don't have time to go back and look at it, but maybe jot in your notes, Romans 6, 12 to 14, it all enslaves. Sin, the nature of sin is it binds us, it holds us, traps us, puts us in chains, imprisons us. And it all works that way. Isn't it true? That you have never sinned, like me, you have never sinned and said, well, that was good for my soul. 
I mean, I got some, I got some benefit out of that. I mean, I know it was sin and I know it was rebellious against God and everything, but that was really good for me. Never have I said that about any sin. Now, I might have said, okay, the Lord taught me something through that, but the sin itself is never good. Sin always binds. Sin always ensnares. Sin always cripples. And so I think what the writer means here is put off every sin. Don't give it any attention. Run from all of it because it all cripples. A number of years ago, oh, the girls were still rel- relatively young. We'd moved into the house that we're living in now, and there was a one of the things that we liked about it was there was a, a slab out back, and somebody had built a shed like on a slab, like a real slab. It's like that's really cool. And um, you know, door, you know, all enclosed, sealed. That was great. And then. Over the years of living there, we noticed um, that the roof was leaking a little bit, so the shingles were old on the roof, and there was some water coming through, and so we had some damage on the roof of the shed. And then water was leaking in in other places as well, and we were starting to get wood rot and little holes forming. And then once a little hole forms in a shed, at least in my yard, it attracts critters. And so, you know, furry ones with long tails started chewing and making their way in. And where the squirrels were, then things that like to eat squirrels followed. And so we would walk in the shed and you would hear things scurrying as soon as the door opened. And I knew that something needed to happen one night when Regine said to me, Hey, it was dark. It was like eight or nine o'clock, wintertime-ish. And she said, hey, would you go to the shed? I'm, I think she had some uh, jars out there she was canning with. She said, would you go to the shed and get some jars? They're right over, you know, and she told me where they were in the shed. It's like, no way. I'm not going out there. I've been out there at night. Things look back at you, and that is not an exaggeration. You would go in there with the flashlight, and you would have eyeballs looking back at you. And you didn't know whether they were birds, squirrels, or snakes. And it was probably all three. We walked in one time, turned around, and right over the door was a snake stretched out over the doorway. So that night, I lost my man card. I don't care. <laughs> Not going out there. And then I realized, you know, it's time to do something. We stripped that thing down. I had the roof off. I had every wall off. And we rebuilt that thing from the ground up. And we put up hardy board, cement board, so that the critters couldn't chew through it. We have a, a, a metal roof on it. We ran electric out there. We put in windows so you could see. And that thing is secure. And by and large, I don't think there are mice, rats, snakes in there anymore. That's what the apostle's talking about. Strip it down. Get rid of everything. You know, I don't know about you, but in my house, there's no such thing as a good snake in the shed. And there's no such thing as a good sin in your life either. Whatever sin we are excusing, and we all tend to excuse sin, whatever sin we are excusing and not addressing, is keeping us from faithfulness to Christ. It will weigh you down. It will cripple you. It will keep you from faithfulness. And for some of us, maybe today's the day. It's just time to get serious about this. I've been, I've been playing around with it and just laughing and saying, yeah, 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 I know I need to do something. It's time to do it time to take it seriously put off every sin he says and every entanglement because we're in a race notice what he says at the end of verse one 
lay these things aside because we have a great cloud of witnesses. And as a result of laying them aside, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're in a race. That word race is an interesting word. It doesn't just mean race, but it actually means the agony. Let us run with endurance the agony. And doesn't life feel that way sometimes? It's agonizing, isn't it? It's painful. It's hard. There's bitterness that comes with it. Harshness. He says, in that harshness, let's run with endurance. Oh, notice the last phrase. It is set before us. In other words, I didn't choose the race. Someone else has chosen the race for me and has put me into the race. And as it were, paid my entry fee and said, go run. And the one who has set us in the race, obviously, is God, isn't it? He's put us there. It's no accident that you live in your circumstances, in your time, in this season, in this day, in your particular family, in your particular environment. God put you there. So that you would live faithfully to him so that others could look at your life and say, ah, that's the way to follow Christ. I know some of you are weary. I get it. There are days that I am weary too. Sometimes the weariness is from effort. It's it's an agonizing race we're in. It's okay to be weary. But let us never be weary because we're carrying around weights, encumbrances, and things that cause us to stumble that God wouldn't have us to carry. It's time to stop, to put off, to take seriously the things that God has commended us not to keep carrying. When suffering, stop. If you're following along, you might have an inclination of where I'm going next. When suffering, start. How do you stop sinning? How do you say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to lay that aside. It's not just about not doing one thing. It's about adding something else to it. The Apostle tells us, using the very same word that he uses here, the Apostle Paul uses the very same word that this writer uses, lay aside, put off sin, Ephesians 4.22, and then put on, again, that garment picture, strip off the old and put on something correspondingly righteous. Put on the deeds of righteousness. Put on the deeds of the new man. How do you stop sinning? You stop sinning by starting, by putting on a righteous replacement to our sinful activity. And the writer gives us a righteous replacement for the encumbrances and sin that derail us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The way to run the marathon of the Christian life is to keep our attention fixated On Christ. If you look around, I am no runner. I mean, I I try every couple, three times a week to get out and run, but it is it is for exercise caloric benefit only. I am no runner at all. I am told that if you're running in a race, the one thing you never do is look around and say, hey, how's everybody else doing? Because that's the moment when somebody's going to go flying past you. The way to run a race is to keep your eyes fixated on the finish line. And that's exactly what the writer's telling us here. Keep your eyes fixated on the finish line, and the finish line is Christ. What's interesting is this particular verb is not just fixing our eyes on Jesus, but the verb is something like Looking away from. And the writer would have us to 
get the sense looking away from anything that keeps you from looking at Christ. So look at Him and Him only. It is very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Look at Christ. There are all kinds of little trinkets on this earth that will distract you. Don't be distracted. Look at Him. Keep your eyes fixated on Him. A few months ago, Regina and I were driving home one evening, and uh, right before you turn into our subdivision, you cross a little bridge, and um, there's, uh, there's been a little island off to the right of that bridge, a little entryway into the lake. And so we're driving across the bridge this particular day, and Regina says, oh, would you look at that? The house is just about finished. And I did a quick glance to the right. What house? And she looked at me like, what kind of idiot are you? I mean, that house that they've been working on for like four months, the house where they they laid the foundation, they poured the foundation, they built the structure, they added a second story, they put in put in a dock that holds two party boats and at least two jet skis, that house that's roofed and closed. I hadn't ever seen the house Why? Because at that particular place, I'm worried about making my turn, about watching all the crazy drivers weaving in and out in front of me. I'm worried about the guy that's tailgating me that doesn't want to slow down when I have to make my right-hand turn. I'm watching all this traffic. I never saw the house. That's what he's talking about. Be fixated with Christ. You've got a goal. And the goal is Christ. Look at Him persistently, relentlessly, confidently. Why pay attention to Jesus? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus because of who He is. He is the author and perfecter of faith. Everybody else in this chapter, chapter 11, they're all flawed people living the life of faith. Christ is the one who is the author. It's not just author, but he's the captain. He's the leader. He is the head, the ruler of faith. He is the one that has designed it. He is the one that has prepared it. He is the one that has accomplished it. And it's not just he's the ruler of my faith, Terry's faith. He is the ruler of the faith. The faith of all men. The faith that brings us to salvation. He is, he is the ruler, the authority, and he is the perfecter. He is the one that completes it and who brings us to completion in that faith. He is the one that, that does what the writer talks about in 1036 and 1037. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised for yet in a very little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay. He finishes the faith. You look to him because as captain and perfecter, He is the ultimate source of our help. Where else are you going to go? What else is going to enable you to make it through life? Recently, I texted a friend who is outside our church body who's going through a particularly difficult season. And life is not going the way he anticipated And I just texted and said, hey, I'm praying for you today. And I gave him some specifics about how I was praying for him. And in his response, he quoted John Newton. Through many many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come, he wrote. Tis grace 
all caps, hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Grace, grace, grace. My life is all His grace. Then let me boast with the Holy Paul, I am nothing. Christ is all. That's a man who though all kinds of things in this world are tempting him to be distracted is fixated on Christ. And that's what the writer here would have us to know. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus because of who he is and what he has accomplished. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus also because of how he endured. Why would we do something different than from what Jesus did when he suffered? And so the writer adds, middle of verse 2, talking about Jesus, who for the joy set before him. That word set before is the same word that appeared in verse 1. The race that is set before us, God has set a race in front of us, put us in a race. In the same way, God the Father has put the Son in His circumstances to produce joy. Joy was set before Christ, but it went through the cross. Can't forget that. The father said, there's joy for you, son. But it must needs go through the cross. And Christ went there. He persisted willingly. Luke 22, father, take this cup from me. If if you will, take it from me. Yet not my will, but yours. I'll do whatever you want. I can't imagine enduring your infinite wrath against sin. But I'll do whatever you say. Why did he do that? Why did he persist? It was because of joy. He knew the end of the cross. The cross wasn't the end. The suffering wasn't the end. The hardship wasn't the end. The hurt wasn't the end. The joy was the end. And we do well to remember that there's joy at the end if we're His. He also, it says, who for the joy before Him endured the cross, it also says He was despising the shame. He despised the shame of the cross. Though the cross was shameful and it was intensely shameful, It was so shameful that no Roman could be crucified on a cross. It was so indignified that even the worst Roman criminal could not be crucified on a cross by a Roman court. So shameful it was. And Christ considered that shame and he looked down on it. Mocked it, if you will was unconcerned with it. He scorned, that's a better word, he scorned the shame of the cross and he turned it into his glory. Don't miss this. He despised the shame and so he looked down on the shame of the cross and said, it's of no concern to me. And He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Shame? What shame? Christ has taken the shame of the cross and exalted it himself to the place where he is co-regent with the eternal God of the universe, sitting at his right hand in the place of favor. And he has sat down having accomplished the work and he never has to get up again. He's always seated at the right hand of the Father. The Father is always satisfied with him. There is no more ever any shame to be endured by him. 
Did he endure shame? <laughs> sure. Did it diminish his ultimate end? Absolutely not. Here's what I think the writer would have us to understand. Brothers and sisters, is there shame in what we endure in this world at times? Yes. But that shame isn't ultimate. What's ultimate is where we are in glory with the Son and with the Father, fully redeemed, washed, cleansed, sanctified, and new. And the implication is we should never be ashamed of anything we endure, but always think with joy and anticipation to what's coming. He will come. When suffering stops, when suffering start, when suffering think. Put off, put on, renew your minds. You need to think a new way. If you and I are going to make it through persecution, suffering, difficulty, hardship, we're going to have to think in new ways. And he gives us something to think in verse 3. For consider, that word consider is a math term. Add up, calculate. Evaluate the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is this one who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself? Consider all of the hostility that Christ willingly endured. That hostility came in the form of words, mocking, derision. It came in physical suffering. We saw it in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, verse 7. He was afflicted. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. That's our Savior. Enduring hostility against himself, against the eternal, infinite God-man, the one who has never sinned, never the just recipient of opposition and mocking. And that opposition, the text tells us that hostility came by sinners. He was always right. They were always wrong. And he never complained. Sometimes you and I suffer. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we have to say, well... Didn't like it, but I understand it. it's what I deserved. It's the seeds I sowed. How could I have expected anything different? That was never the case with Christ. All his suffering was unjust, unfair, unrighteous. And it always came from those who were unjust and unrighteous. So why should we think about these kinds of things about Christ? Notice the end of the verse. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So you'll not grow weary and lose, the word literally is soul. So you don't lose the inner man. The writer is not discounting the reality of difficulties and suffering. He's saying there are going to be things that will entice you, tempt you to grow weary Things that will entice you to lose heart, to lose soul. They will tempt you to become despairing. And if we want to have inner courage and inner strength, we need to stop looking at those things that are distracting us and start looking at the Savior. We need to start contemplating the greatness of Christ. Can I say it this way? When our hearts are weary, it may be evidence that we are not looking sufficiently at Christ. We've not calculated who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And we've looked too much at the circumstances and not enough at the Savior. Consider Him. John Owen says it this way. If we fight our difficulties in our own natural strength, we will quickly grow weary. This is where all spiritual decline starts. Suffering, persecution, 
They're common. And we don't have to look far to see it. And the temptation to quit is strong. But we get strength by looking to the past and especially to looking at the past work of our Savior. Maintaining faithfulness to Christ when suffering starts here by looking at Him. We need to think about our suffering in a new way and put it in the perspective of Christ. And friends, unlike those who have four cones and can see colors in more dazzling ways, and most of us not being like them, all of us in Christ have been given a perspective to see the full color of what God is doing in our lives and to experience the full strength of what He has given us. But we've got to look to Christ. Lay aside the encumbrances and the sins. Start looking at the Savior and think on what He has accomplished and how He has led a pathway for you to follow after Him, being like Him. Our Father, we thank You for the privilege of seeing flawed men their weaknesses. And now this morning, seeing not just that flawed men might live faithfully to You, but seeing that we have a Savior who fully accomplished what no man can And He has given us the example and the power to follow Him. Might we fix our eyes on Him today? Might we consider Him and calculate what He has done and follow His pathway so that we maintain faith and that we don't become weary? Father, there are all kinds of things that are compelling and tempting us these days. And would you give us boldness, fortitude, strength to follow after our blessed Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.